it was exciting and fun. And up until the 2016 election, we really had a halo effect. The platform was seen as like a fun place. You got to connect with friends. It was just a lot of sunshine and rainbows. And, you know, that changed pretty suddenly. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Crystal Patterson, who recently left Facebook after a decade in their political and policy and lobbying arm to become Senior Vice President and Managing Director at FSB Public Affairs. I was happy to get the chance to talk to Crystal about her career in democratic politics, where she was an early user of digital tools working for people like Senator Ted Kennedy and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton on their internet presences, and about her time at Facebook, as Facebook became very entangled with our politics, and what is next for her at FSB. Crystal is well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Crystal Patterson, now at FSB Public Affairs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Crystal. Hi. (laughs) Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Crystal Patterson. I have worked in democratic politics for probably about the last 20 years. The last seven and a half or so, I was working at Facebook on their public policy team until just a few weeks ago when I left to do public affairs consulting for a firm that's expanding into DC. Before Facebook, I worked on a bunch of campaigns on the Hill. Um, It's kind of like a running party game to try to name the places I worked because I (laughs) tried a lot of different things before I ended up at Facebook. Where'd you grow up, Crystal? I'm originally from a very small town in Northeast Ohio. It's called Perry Township. It's a suburb of Akron, which is basically a suburb of Cleveland and uh, small enough that I didn't realize until I left for college that it was classified as semi-rural. When you're in your own town, you think it's big. Um, when I was a kid, growing to Cleveland was going to the big city, which should tell you <laughs> how things related there. Yeah, it is a real city. It's a wonderful city. But I mean, to us, it might as well have been New York compared to where we grew up. I had a pretty idyllic um, childhood, all things considered. My brother is 10 years older than me. We were raised by a single mom who was a teacher. We had no money, you know, but it didn't really matter. It sounds cheesy, like a Hallmark movie, but we we still had a pretty good life. You know, she got us um, into a good school district. So we had a really good education. I'd run around with my friends on the weekends and ride my bike. And, you know, I I got to do all the 
extracurriculars, you know, you'd want to have growing up. And I just have really fond memories as a kid of being there and grew up around a bunch of really good people. So it was nice. I, I will say, I mean, by the time I finished high school, I knew I needed to get out of there if I wanted to pursue the dreams I had. Um, my, again, my brother's significantly older than me and had left to go to Boston for um, undergrad and law school. And he was instrumental in kind of helping me see how big the world really was and, you know, making sure I was thinking big about what I wanted to do with my life, which was critical. He and my mom both really, you know, enforced in my brain that I needed to study. And if I had grades and really put forth my best effort, I'd have as many choices as possible, which, which turned out to be right. Um, and again, we were in a small town, you know, most kids either went to the local community college or if they were really pushing it, went to Ohio State. And and those are both great options. But my mom and my brother were really adamant, I, I think, beyond just those choices about what I wanted to do. And um, I ended up going to college in Chicago at Northwestern, which was a huge adjustment. I mean, talk about going from being like a kind of small fish in a tiny pond to just being a total, I, it's, it's like fish out of water. It was a huge adjustment for me going to a big school in a big city and experience a bunch of things I just hadn't seen before. And not anything like nefarious, just just really different energy and speed of life. Um, but it was great. So and after that, I moved to D.C. <laughs> <laughs> well, the politics of your family and your upbringing in that town, was that an active part of what you were learning or were you not politicized at that point? Yes, but I didn't know that's what it was at the time. You know, politics was different then. It was a lot more like church and money. You didn't talk about it overtly. I feel like it's pretty typical now for people to look at somebody and basically identify their political party by, you know, one or two things that they say. And that that wasn't how things were back then. I didn't really start thinking about things through that lens until I got much older. But I certainly, I think, where I grew up was probably more conservative. I mean, we all, you know, went to church on Sundays. and But again, conservative then was a different thing than it is now. Uh, so, you know, it was a lot more moderate. But I do think growing up in the circumstances I did, my brother and I are biracial. Our, our mom's white, our dad's black. We lived in public housing. We moved in when I was five and my mom, you know, was still there when I moved out and went to college. And, you know, we had an array of neighbors who had different circumstances. The guy next door to us was a Vietnam vet. You know, the woman next to us, you know, had some addiction issues. We were safe in our neighborhood. I don't want to make it sound like it was uh, worse or bad than it was, but um, it was really eye-opening to see the circumstances people were trying to survive in and make things work for themselves. And I think that gave me a lot to think about in terms of having compassion for other people. I wasn't thinking about it as a social safety net when I was eight years old, but like how important it was that these folks had some place to live and, you know, ways to feed their kids and things like that. And these weren't like conscious thoughts at the time, but I can see where all those experiences kind of informed where my politics went as I got older. I mean, a lot of times a kid like that coming from a small town going to a fairly elite college like Northwestern, pretty transformative, probably fairly testing uh, experience. What did you study? What was, how did you grow? I went in, I my again, my brother was like my idol growing up and he'd gone to law school. He'd been an economics major. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. 
And then I was an econ major. My advisor was the chair of the econ department. And (laughs) he was super nice. I think he was concerned about me. I definitely went through that freshman year, like, evolution where you've basically been left on your own to figure out your life and you just start having too much fun and not paying enough attention to some of the stuff you know you need to do. I worked, I had, you know, I had a work study job, I babysat. I went to class most of the time, I guess. Um, but I also was just doing too much on the weekends. And um he called me in to talk about just how I was doing. And he was like, so let's talk about these poli sci classes you're taking. I guess this was probably by my sophomore year. And I was like, yes, those are fun. Um, you know, I, I just like taking those. I think they're interesting. And he's like, have you considered making that your major? And I was like, uh, why would I do that? I'm an econ major. And he was like, I mean, you are, but I don't know if that's really where you should be. And he was nice about it. But, you know, he kind of gave me the nudge to reconsider what I was interested in, because what I said I wanted to do versus what I actually was trying to study and also where I excelled in my classes was in the the poli-sci world. I didn't know how you got jobs doing that kind of work. Like I read everything about politics. I followed campaigns. I, in hindsight, my mom was really a very understanding lady about some of the stuff. Like I remember I watched the 88 Republican convention, like doing a jigsaw on the coffee table in the living room, which, you know, at that point I was, yeah, like 10 I don't know that that's normal 10-year-old behavior, but my mom, you know, just went with it and and also made sure I was doing kid things too. But, you know, I was really interested in this stuff at an early age. But again, to me, it was something, it was like entertainment almost. Like it's things other people do on TV and, you know, you kind of read and observe. Anyway, I switched over uh, to be a poli-sci major, which was the right move. So again, thank you, Mark Witte at Northwestern University. I appreciate the nudge. I finished school. I it was a real adjustment. I mean, you know, the tuition there was expensive. I I had a scholarship. I worked, you know, I I basically set it up. So that way my mom wasn't getting any bills for college. She'd still send me money to help me live. But, you know, I really tried to make it so it wasn't a burden on her for me to be there. And it was, it was hard. I, you know, I really struggled academically for a few quarters, just trying to balance all of it and also feeling, uh, it's very isolating. You know, I'm in a big city, you know, I think a lot of the kids thought I was like a little bit of like a rube. Um, and it's not like anybody was mean, but you just feel that you're different and, you know, trying to get used to that. I will also say I had people along the way who kind of came at the right moments and, you know, were support for me. I, I had a family. I I babysat for their kids the whole time, you know, I was there and they, they were awesome and a really good consistent presence for me and supportive, you know, in a lot of ways as I was getting through school. And then in my junior senior years, I was tutoring kids for their SATs and ACTs and academic courses. And one of the families I met, I hit it off with. And the mom has multiple sclerosis. She'd been diagnosed a few years before and just needed help, like doing groceries and things like that that were a little more physical. So she hired me to be her personal assistant because um, I was at their house so much anyway, and I was helping with stuff. So she was like, let's just like make this an official thing. And eventually, like, I ended up living with them and just helping out around the house and doing all kinds of stuff, which was great, like, obviously, as a consistent job, but I still consider them family. And they were critical in me having kind of emotional and, you know, uh, parental support uh, going into the last little section of college. I just really had a hard time for a while. And, you know, they were critical in making sure I kept my head on straight and focused on the goal, which was getting my diploma as opposed to getting hung up on like, 
a paper that wasn't as good of a grade that I wanted or a schedule that was tough. My mom was still in the mix, but she was, you know, she'd moved while I was in college. She'd moved from Ohio to Washington, D.C., where my brother had also relocated. So she was trying to figure out her life. And I, I definitely went through a phase in college where I acted like I didn't really need my family that much. You know, you get that ego uh, when you when you first moved out on your own. College was a, a big adjustment and a big journey. I was there during the 2000 election. I, I voted in Chicago legally. But, you know, we had a butterfly ballot there that was, you know, 60 pages long or something like that. So when they were talking about that on the TV, like, you know, I was really paying attention because I was invested in that. By then, I was definitely a Democrat. Most of that ballot was judges. And, you know, I hadn't, I'd read up on the top level people on the ballot, but I didn't know any of the judges. And so I literally went through and was like, if there was a woman, I picked her. And if there was someone who sounded more like ethnic in some way, or like, you know, like they had, they came from a different background, I would prioritize them in my voting, which was probably not the best way to go, but <laughs> kind of show you where my head was at the time. Um, and also just overwhelmed by how many. So I was like, I have to have some kind of strategy for this. But I'm also, I was really adamant I wasn't going to leave any options blank on the ballot because to me, like the ability to vote and make that choice was so important. I first met you, I believe, <laughs> on the Hillary for President campaign in 2007. I wonder if you could just trace your path from college to that campaign. What did you do to prepare so that you were ending up on the digital team there eventually? That's a great question. Um, I, 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 through a family friend, I got on my first campaign in 2002 and was doing your normal, you know, field, volunteer, GOTV, all that good stuff. And I loved it. Um, I figured out how to get a job in politics, which is exciting. And then 2002 was a terrible year for Democrats. Came back to D.C., really struggled because uh, everybody was looking for jobs and there just weren't that many because, you know, we'd had a drubbing at the polls. But I met at a job fair, a woman at a, from Emily's List, and we just started chatting and hit it off. A few months later, I had a voicemail from a woman who'd gotten my resume from the lady at the job bank. And the job was at the DCCC on their political team. And I ended up being kind of a jack of all trades, a junior jack of all trades on the political team. Um, but it was great for me. It was like political boot camp. I got to work around really smart people and learn about every aspect of campaigns and, and in a way that was different than being on a campaign. The other part that was interesting that cycle, though, was it was the 2004 cycle. So Howard Dean had run for president and his campaign had really revolutionized how people use the Internet for fundraising, volunteering and just communicating. And to, to explain what a sea change there was between the beginning of the cycle and the end, when I started at the D-Trip in the spring of 2003, they were very excited because they had launched a monthly digital newsletter. It was an e-newsletter that they just send out. And they were very pleased that they were doing something technological to update people on what was happening. And by the end, we had built the first version of the tools that Barack Obama would use on his campaign because Blue State Digital was one of our consultants. I mean, they obviously added a lot more bells and whistles for Obama a few years later as the technology advanced. But, you know, they helped us build some tools to raise money, to help recruit friends and to sign up to volunteer. It was really exciting to be part of that. We were really trying to find innovative ways to get people excited about, you know, helping with house races and showing up to volunteer. We had a couple of special elections in the 04 cycle, which is where the work kind of started. 
Our first one was in Kentucky for Ben Chandler. We took a district that Bush had won by 12 points and Chandler won it by 12. So it was a huge swing and a, a, a good uh, motivator for us to keep doing it. Um, we had a really great victory with Stephanie Herseth in South Dakota. She won her race by 1,200 votes, um, which there's no question that our program made the difference in that race in securing that seat. Um, and again, it just became so successful that by the time we'd hit the general election, we were running programs in 15 districts. But again, to hit that scale and reach the people we needed to reach, we needed the technology. And so that's where our work with Blue State and Echo Ditto, another firm, came in. Um, so I helped with the strategy there. I didn't really know much about like the tech, but I knew I really enjoyed this stuff. Even then, I was thinking about how I could make myself more marketable as I was going around and trying to find my next job. What did not go as planned is that Bob Matsui, our chairman, unfortunately passed away at the end of 2004. And so Rahm Emanuel took over and is typical wanted to bring in his own people to help execute on his vision to get us over the finish line. And so most of us were let go. Um, and I was cleaning out my desk. I carrying like a bin of stuff out the front door of headquarters. And I see one of the guys from blue state and he's, you know, bouncing off the walls and excited and tells me they just signed Kennedy as a client. I didn't know which Kennedy he meant, whether it was, you know, representative Patrick Kennedy or Senator Edward Kennedy, but regardless, that was a huge win for them in terms of just trying to build out their client roster in DC. And I said, you know, that's great. Congrats. And I started to walk away and he's, he says, Hey, can I, give them your resume. They're looking for somebody to help them kind of manage their digital stuff. I think you'd be ideal for this because it's like a mix of political and writing and, you know, understanding how to reach people online. And I said, I needed a job. I I, I'd gotten a job waiting tables at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe, which was fun. I wanted to really find my next, next, next job. And the idea of working for somebody with that much stature, whether again, it was Patrick or, or Ted Kennedy was, you know, obviously very appealing it was Ted Kennedy. I got a job with him and it was helping build out his first campaign website and just kind of running strategy around that. And it was so fun. He would just say a lot of things that I think a lot of other people were afraid to, you know, by that point in his career, he was just saying what he really thought and was really open to like pushing the envelope, particularly around the issues that were salient at the time, like the Iraq war, you know, Tom DeLay was still running things in the house. There was, there were just a lot of issues that you know, it was, it was valuable to have a strong Democrat at the top of the, you know, the, <laughs> at the top of the emails and the the messaging um, to land it. So anyway, I went to work for him. But when I started working for him, I felt like I really needed to know more about how the technology worked so I could work more effectively with our consultants. So I got an HTML for Dummies book and basically taught myself how to, to code. You know, it, it came in handy a lot. The other thing I'll point out is there were not any, there weren't very many women doing this at that point. There was a group of guys that were predisposed to being into tech. Uh, I'll, I'll describe them that way. And so I was a little bit of an outlier. There weren't very many women. There were no women of color doing it. And again, I was too green at the time to really un think about that. I just wanted to pay my rent and, you know, and see my friends. Like I was, you know, 25, 26 in DC and trying to figure things out. So anyway, I worked for him for a while. I, I wasn't getting paid enough to really stop waiting tables. And I really wanted to do that. And again, being young and naive, I didn't realize I should just go and ask for more money, which I think they would have been probably happy to accommodate. So 
I went and found another job doing fundraising for a 527 here in town and did that for a few months. And then uh, Peter Dow, who ran Hillary's digital operation, reached out to me at the end of 2006 and said, hey, you know, we're we're trying to put together a team. Can we talk? She hasn't decided yet, but, you know, if she does, we're really trying to find great people. Would you be interested? So I, I went and talked to him and, you know, I've um, been a passionate supporter of Hillary since I was a kid, you know, back when Bill was running and she was awesome to me. And so this was seemed like a great opportunity. And so that's how I came on board with Hillary. How was that uh, Hillary experience for you? Um, it was, there were some really great things about it. And then it was also extremely challenging. My experience with Ted Kennedy was helpful in that I was pretty comfortable working with somebody that was publicly criticized pretty harshly. When I worked for Ted Kennedy, it shocked me. Some of the things people were comfortable like posting about him or sending into the campaign, like the the level of uh, vitriol and just acidity in the ways people would communicate were a little jarring. But that meant by the time I went to work for Hillary, I, you know, understood that these people become kind of symbols for the things people are upset about. And that's how it manifests itself sometimes. She was great. I, I actually did get to spend a little time with her. We did some town halls to launch the campaign and I got to ans- ask her the questions. You know, we asked for people to send in questions to us and then we picked some to cover a range of que- you know areas. And then I was the one who got to ask her them on camera, which was great because like, Hillary Clinton. And also, you know, I got to spend a little time with her just chatting before and after. She had a great sense of humor. She's just the most like together person I think I've ever experienced in politics in terms of just um, understanding the dynamics around her and also not reacting to them, even if she wanted to. She was doing some remote news hits as we were waiting to do the town hall. And one of the one of the newscasters asked a question that basically like centered Bill about her run for president. It implied that her her ability to run and like anything she had to offer was only because of him. It was trying to poke. And she's obviously very skilled at not taking the bait. So, you know, she very smoothly answered the question and pivoted to, you know, get back to what she was running for and why she was running and finished the interview. And I was like, I this is very typical me. I was like, oh my God. I was like, that question was so shitty. I can't believe you didn't like give it back to him. And she was like, you know, I'm used to it at this point. People are going to say what they're going to say. I got to stay focused on what I'm here to do. She was just cool as a cucumber. She laughed. I mean, she, she was able to acknowledge that it was not the best question. Um, But, and I love that she had a sense of humor about it too, because I think a lot of people would have gotten their back up about it and, and been a little more strident in how they reacted, but she was great. The rest of the experience was tough. It was hard the Obama team was really innovating and trying things and the nature of the way the Clinton campaign was run is they were one much more nervous about digital. Most of the senior folks on the team didn't really get it. That was kind of a tough combination. They didn't take it seriously and they were afraid of it, which means we were definitely a lot more cautious than we should have been. And it was difficult to watch the other side basically just dunking on us all the time, coming up with like fun things to do and also being pretty fearless about trying things. But this is also the advantage of when you have somebody new and, you know, you're not fighting against 30 years of, you know, a preset notion of who this person is. Um, and also with a candidate who was a lot more comfortable with trying things, again, to 
the way Hillary was treated in that interview, I think her her approach is cautious because often there's somebody trying to bait her, poke her, or whatever when they're doing things. And so I, I think the caution is understandable, but it's very frustrating when you're trying to run like an innovative program and come up with ideas to get people excited. So I, it was tough. I also just found the the dynamics on the team were hard. I have some awesome friends from there, but we were we were often kind of all frustrated by how difficult it was to do things and trying to collaborate with senior folks on the team about what this would look like. And I was mainly tasked with putting things up on the blog and helping manage, you know, communications with uh, like different affinity groups, like women for Hillary, you know, labor for Hillary. And it just got frustrating that we couldn't really try things. I've tried to figure out a way to make a graceful exit. And the answer for me was going over to AFSME, which was a labor union that had gone, saying they'd gone big for Hillary would be such an understatement. Ironically, my first day at AFSME, I flew to Ohio to campaign for Hillary on their behalf. So I spent just as much time campaigning when I switched jobs. But, you know, um, it was it was more comfortable at AFSME. They actually were, um, I just felt like I was more useful there. So I, I'm really grateful for the experience. I learned a lot. But, you know, I, I, I always think about what might have been if we'd been able to be a little more experimental with what we were willing to do. So at this point, you've become, you know, one of the few people in the country who is working in that intersection of digital and politics. It's still pretty new. It's not that many people working on it. And you you continue to kind of grow your skills and your experience. Tell me about the path then from asked me through to Facebook? So it asked me, I moved into more traditional communications. We were doing, you know, different labor um, initiatives. And, and some of them were internal things like educating members on dues or doing public fights on labor issues. And the last big project I worked on was this program called Fair Share in Maryland. So typically... When there's a contract ratified with a union and an employer, it applies to all the employees in the bargaining unit. So all the employees that are covered by the contract. It costs money to negotiate that contract, maintain it, enforce it. And typically what happens is the union members cover those costs. Fair share says that even people who opt out of being in the union but are still protected by that contract have to pay a fee for enjoying the benefits of that contract. Well, it was a little bit of a tough sell in the legislature just because people who didn't want to join a union didn't think it was fair that they should have to pay for protections that they still received. Um, and it was a huge initiative for the union to get this passed. Um, I didn't, if there's going to be a thread here. There's a lot of things that I didn't see in the moment <laughs> that became clear to me in hindsight. And I was sent up to work on this and it was really challenging politically I think there was a little sense of panic about getting this done. This was 2009, 2010, and the labor movement, we just had this huge split between, you know, SEIU and AFSCME and some of the others. And I, I think this is when the energy in the labor movement started to change where they could feel like they needed to, to make some big changes as they were going to continue to have the political weight that they had in the past. Um, with legislators and in, you know, having a say in how policy gets developed. 
So they really wanted this victory psychologically. But all I really could feel was like the day-to-day stress of everybody panicking. I wasn't understanding the enormity of how this was playing at headquarters. And actually, I went in and I was like, why am I being punished? Like, why am I having all these people yelling at me and having people breathe down my neck? And, you know, I don't know what I did wrong. And my boss at the time was like, this is one of the most important projects we have. Like, it's a vote of confidence in you that we've asked you to do this. And I was like, oh, and he was like, yes. So I know it doesn't feel like it, but this is actually us telling you, like, we have confidence in your abilities. And I was like, oh, that's okay, great. So we did that. Fair share passed. It was a good victory for us. Um, and then after at that point, I'd been at AFSME for like two years and wanted to try something different. Um, and my old boss from my first job in DC, the DCCC, and I had stayed close and she had started her own firm and needed somebody to help her run it. And we went out to dinner one night and just started talking about it. And I really missed working with her and thought it would be fun. And so we kept talking about it. And I was like, she's, she's like, why don't you come over and you, know, you can be managing director and help me, you know, grow this thing. And I, I said, awesome. I love that. And I did go over, we had a blast. Um, I did that for like a year and a half and learned that running a business is really hard. There's just a lot of it that you don't know about until you're in it. Uh, I am so proud that I worked with her and she's still very successful and, you know, kicking ass in that job. But I, I kind of got burned out and a friend of mine was like, came up to me one day or called me, I guess, and said, Tim Ryan's looking for a communications director and he really wants a woman. He loves somebody who's got experience with labor because in his district and for him personally, that's really important. And, you know, I was chatting with him and he was like, do you know anybody? And I thought of you and she's like, you know, can they reach out to you? And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, but I also should talk to him. I, I knew not having direct Hill experience was a gap on my resume. I mean, I'd done some cool things, but, you know, especially back then, if you looked at job listings, a lot of them said Hill experience preferred. I'd been at the D trip. I, you know, I'd certainly had Nancy Pelosi bossing me around, but I didn't have anything on my resume that said, you know, I understood how a bill becomes a law firsthand. So anyway, I met with Tim. He's just got great energy. He's a lot of fun. He's, he's a little bit like Ted Kennedy in that, you know, he'll, he'll go out and, and say the true thing out loud. He'll say the quiet parts out loud in a way that is, is uh, attention grabbing. And also, you know, he's just, he's still kind of ascendant, I think, as a star in the party and, you know, is, is, was pretty game to do a lot of things. So, you know, if I wanted to put him on TV, he'd be up for that. I'd read something in the paper in the morning that I thought was relevant to our constituents, you know, with some economic statistic and, you know, he blew in the office and I was like, look at these numbers these are the three things that matter about these numbers and here's how it affects our district. Can you please go down and make a one minute speech about it so I can send it around to the news organizations? And he was like, sure, send me a couple notes and I'll do it. This was like at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, at seven o'clock at night, he'd run out on the floor and give like something way better than I could have scripted for him. Like he's just got a really good way of, of communicating. So that was really fun. I did that for about a year and a half while I was working for him. It was the 2012 Obama reelect. So we were involved with that. I, you know, I worked on his official side. I was helping with comms on the campaign side. And then in addition to that, he wrote a book about mindfulness, which is a personal passion of his. And I have a habit of overextending myself. And I did that again, because I said, why don't I, you know, do some volunteer work and help with the book promotion and just managing. I, I also 
to be fair, wanted to have some control over what was going on with the book as it fit in with everything else, um, which was great experience for me. Again, I, I met some awesome folks that were working with him on the book. But again, after about a year and a half, I was just super burnt out and also frustrated. You know, when I was on the Hill, it was sort of the beginning of what we see now where these budget talks, we get stuck. Everything just felt like a hostage situation. When you come to DC as a young political person and are really interested in changing the world and you have this idealism about what you can get accomplished, like continually running into brick walls just starts to to wear on you. Um, so I decided it was time to leave the Hill. I was sort of idly looking around and then somebody heard I was looking and it was, it was a woman actually who worked with us on the Clinton campaign, Jessica O'Connell. Um, she was our operations director on the Clinton team. She's awesome. She had a really awesome rise in that campaign and then has had an amazing career since. She's like, I think somebody I really like and respect most in town and has been able to like really maintain her integrity and uh, operate as an honest broker, which is I think hard to do when you've had a career as long as hers, but um, she's been very solid. So anyway, at the time she was a VP at CAP, the Center for American Progress, and reached out and said, you know, I heard you might be looking. We really need a comms person to work on immigration and then like diversity policy. But the immigration is really the big thing because we're going to have a huge legislative fight next year. Would you be interested in coming into interview? And I did and, you know, got the job. That was also a really cool experience. I hadn't worked someplace like CAP before. And we literally were in the middle of crafting that bill and helping it move across the finish line. I got to work with a coalition of people at different groups uh, that I wouldn't have met and also who were really, really brilliant strategists and really understood the issues deeply. I learned a lot from them. And the nice thing was at CAP, it was great because we had experts who were helping, you know, make sure the fundamentals were in the bill. But there was also a great sense of humility because a lot of these other groups really understood the people who were going to be affected by these bills and what it looked like in practice, um, which is really critical. I think, you know, when we're in D.C., a lot of this stuff is ideas on paper as opposed to really understanding what it looks like in practice for people. And so this was a really nice mesh of, you know, understanding how to move lawmakers and also make sure we're looking out for the people that we're ostensibly trying to advocate for, you know, through that policy. It went well. We, we moved it through the Senate and it was actually kind of surprising to me because, you know, it was time to go to the House. And I, I think I sounded a little defeatist, but my attitude was, well, that was great. Good job. And now it's not going anywhere. And, you know, a few people internally were like, what do you mean? And I was like, there's no way that the Republicans are ever going to let this bill move. Like policy wise, it's not really in line with where they are. Politically, it doesn't make any sense for them. I just don't see it. And, you know, we had some back and forth about that. I probably wasn't being sensitive enough to how many years people had put into trying to move this ball forward. I, in my head, I was just being a realist. Unfortunately, I think I was right. So uh, that's uh, too bad. But I, I'm still really proud we did that work. But anyway, once that kind of stalled, it was sort of like, okay, how do we regroup from here? And in the meantime, a job I'd wanted at Facebook for about seven years, I heard it was going to open up. I'd heard Adam Connor, who started the D.C. office for Facebook and was on their government and politics outreach team, working with Democrats, was getting ready to leave. And a friend who had gone to work for the company was like, I think, you know, we're going to have an opening that'll be interesting to you. Send me your resume. 
And so I did. And that's how I went to Facebook. It's so interesting how your career unfolded and, and how one piece led to another. And, and some of the things are so fortuitous, you know, like just, you know, I, I met a blue state person coming out of the, you know, that's the way life is. Right. And yes, particularly in DC. And if that hadn't happened, something else would have happened, but this was your path and this is, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a lovely career to this point. You've kind of moved up and around and you've gained the experience that you need to, to be helpful in the next place and the, and the contacts and so on. Yeah, I think that's right. I also just really try, I mean, I still do this. My attitude when I come into any job is to just try to be a sponge. There's always more to learn, which I actually really appreciate, especially as I've gotten older in my career. I have a lot of skills I can offer, but there's still things I haven't done. You know, other people have had experiences I haven't had. And so getting the chance to be around them and learn from them is really, really nice. And also accepting that like, some of this is luck and happenstance. I mean, some of it's, you know, the, the being it's, prepared. It's what you make of it, you know? Right. And, well, and, and being prepared, you know, like you want to have your skills lined up so that if the right opportunity comes along, you know, you can make the case for why you're the right person. But I do think there's a, a fair amount in DC of, you know, people walking around like, you know, this all just happened because I'm so great or because I, you know, did all the exact right things. And, I, I think most people who've been able to succeed and thrive here, it's a mix of things, being good, but also building good relationships, being a person people want to work with, having skills that they find useful, and, and also just some luck. I mean, you also don't know. I mean, there's a sliding doors version of my life where, you know, I didn't leave Ted Kennedy's office. And I think the odds are pretty good that if you've guessed which digital team I was going to be on for the 08 election. It would not have been Hillary Clinton's. It would have been Barack Obama's. You don't know where some of these choices are going to take you. And I I, I feel really, really lucky. And I hate using the word blessed because I feel like it gets overused on Twitter all the time. But like I've had really awesome people and really awesome experiences. And, and some of it's, you know, yes, I can write and learn, but also just some good luck and other people looking out for me, which I'm grateful for. In the recent article in the Wall Street Journal, you're quoted as worrying that the Facebook employment is becoming something of a scarlet letter. But at the time, you're eager to take this. What was it about the political part of Facebook that attracted you? A bunch of things. And I still feel this way. I, I, I the, the Wall Street Journal article is tough because it shows one slice of my time there and, and by that, I mean one part of the job, but also just really represents one part of the time um, and what I was focused on. Because um, overall, it was a really great experience. Uh, they are tackling problems no one's really dealt with before, both in terms of how the technology gets used, at the scale, and also in a political environment that's as challenging as any I think we've seen in our lifetimes and trying to negotiate that is, is really difficult. Again, another place where I learned a lot and it's the first bipartisan place I've worked, you know, every, every place else has been pretty progressive and it was eye opening to work with Republicans and most of the Republicans at Facebook are actually pretty moderate. So this isn't like I was, you know, walking into, you know, a, a hostile situation, but, you know, their stakeholders have different considerations and having to discuss those trade-offs and have those inform the company's decisions 
was really fascinating. When I first came, I was working closely with our STEM lobbying team to work with elected officials, campaigns, and advocacy organizations on how to use the platform effectively. You know, when I first started, we didn't even have every member of Congress on Facebook yet. We were still really trying to overcome this digital fear that had existed when I was joining the Hillary campaign seven years before. And then once you got them on, getting them to use it well, so that way they felt like it was worth the time. And and we got there too. I mean, there's some really great success stories. Ironically, a few of the best ones are people who are most critical of Facebook. I mean, Elizabeth Warren really built a huge following on there and uses it very effectively. You know, the she persisted situation with Mitch McConnell really played out on Facebook. After he told her she couldn't read that letter on the House floor, she hopped right outside the door of the chamber and went live on Facebook because she already understood the power of the platform and knew how to do it effectively. And it was a point of pride for me, not because I did anything necessarily, but it demonstrated that we were doing the work of getting these legislators to understand how useful this tool could be. And, you know, she she got outside and she did that live in the evening. More people saw it on Facebook than ever would have seen it on C-SPAN. She had, at the time, in less than 12 hours, more than 12 million views, and it led every morning show. And obviously, we're still talking about it to this day. So very effective. Bernie Sanders, you know, has used it very effectively. One of my favorite success stories on there is Beto O'Rourke. Um, he, I met with him early on, and he was resistant to social media because he was a younger member. He's got, you know, that kind of cool guy persona. So, you know, he's like, I skateboard, I'm young, I'm really not interested in posting cat videos all day. I mean, he literally said that to me. He's like, I don't want to be posting cat videos, which I, you know, took a little umbrage at (laughs) for a variety of reasons. Um, But I, you know, I just told him, I was like, look, your page can be what you want it to be. It's all about what approach you take. And maybe instead of looking at this as something silly, because his concern was, I don't want people to think I'm playing on my phone all day. Like this job is important to me. I take this work seriously. I'm spending as much time as I can advocating for my constituents. And I don't want it looking like my focus is anywhere but that. And I was like, okay, well then do that on your page. Think about, you know, how do you turn your page into like, virtually bringing your constituents into a day in your office. And, you know, I I think we planted the seeds in that meeting, but he really got it quickly. And so just started posting everything that was going on in his office. He'd post, you know, videos describing why he was taking a vote he was taking. He'd take pictures with people who came in to meet with him. He, he did all kinds of things that were interesting. And then obviously by the time he was campaigning for Senate, you know, he'd really cracked the code. Who knew I would feel so much pride watching someone fill their gas tank on Facebook Live and turning into a prices right game where people would guess how much the gas would t- gas would cost and then turning that into a fundraising ask. I mean, that is like taking, you know, the seed of an idea and just really going to the next level. But it, it was really exciting to see, learn to understand the platform and take control over their message. You know, it's it's a tough media environment right now. I think getting people to write the story you want them to write, or even just breaking through is tough. And, you know, seeing these public servants really trying to find ways to communicate with their constituents effectively felt really good. After 2016, it felt a little different. I think what we saw from the Trump campaign was uh, difficult, uh, just because, you know, they sort of weaponized tools that, you know, we'd always thought of as a a value add for people where they could hear from their elected officials and 
speak to them and hold them accountable. Um, and you know that the Trump approach kind of turned that on its head a little bit, and it worked, it seems. So that was a little upsetting. And by then, I was burnt out. I mean, I'll admit some of this. My reactions to it were, were a result of just me being tired. You know, we I've been in politics for a long time. By then, you know, I was our uh, main point of contact with the Clinton campaign for Facebook into the 2016 cycle, and they were great to work with. But campaigns are grueling, and in addition to the Clinton campaign, you know, I was working with the Obama White House and basically everybody from local dog catcher up to the White House on the Dem side. So if they had questions or needed explainers on things, I was tasked with making sure that got follow up. We, we started to hire people at that point, but for a long time, there was me on the Dem side and then I had a counterpart on the Republican side and, you know, we were just asked to juggle a lot. But yeah, I, it was it was exciting and fun. And up until, again, the 2016 election, you know, we really had a halo effect. The platform was seen as like a fun place. You got to connect with friends. You get ads for things you didn't know about and buy them. And it was just a lot of sunshine and rainbows. And, you know, that changed pretty suddenly. And after that, it felt different. I still felt like we were solving big problems. I was still really happy to be there and trying to figure it out. I had a fair number of friends who were Democrats who were just really dumbfounded that I'd want to be there. But myself and the other Democrats on the policy team, one felt it was really important to have that perspective represented in the room when decisions were getting made. We were tasked with talking to the members and candidates, but when you know internal deliberations were happening, different teams were weighing in, different considerations are being brought to the table. And we wanted the feedback of Democrats or, you know, the interests of Democrats represented in those conversations. Um, and I felt like it was important to do that. And also that if we weren't there, it wouldn't necessarily be there. So that also was a motivating thing for me to stay um, for as long as I did. I'm glad I did that. Do you think Facebook helped uh, Trump win? Uh, in the sense, in what sense? Do you think <laughs> Trump used Facebook to win his success on Facebook in advertising and in promoting himself and getting heard, uh, yes. resulted in, uh, yes. an advantage that may yes. have made the difference? I mean, he used the platform exceptionally well. His, his style also lends itself to social media. You know, he, he's been on TV for years. The, this is also somebody before he was on TV regularly knew how to get press. There's a reason why he's been in movies and, you know, popping Talk up. Shows. As a, yeah. 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 I mean, he was like, I remember I was a fixture growing up in the 80s and he was like a real estate guy. He knew how to get attention. And I think that translated well to social media. I think there's a perception among Democrats that like Facebook internally really worked hard to like do things for him that made a difference. I didn't see that necessarily. Um, well, his team did sort of sub out a lot of the Facebook use to your internal teams, right? So we had the way things were structured. So I worked on what we call organic content. So that's everything unpaid. We also had a team that helped with paid content. So ads and back then the rules are different now. We really re jiggered how all of this worked post 2016. But we'd go in and work with them on their strategy. You know, we'd look at their stats and say, okay, videos working well, you know, photos aren't do some surgical advice on how to that you would do for any client, but they yes. but they did it a lot more with you because they were less confident 
of their Yeah, and own. I think I think well in in our our team that was assigned to them is really good. So I think they were like tell us more, tell us more, you know, how how should we be doing this? They did a lot of testing. You know, they would do, you know, 100 different versions of an ad. I'm sure our folks were like here's how you analyze those metrics and, you know, how you do things. So, yes, in that sense, they definitely got more help and and their team wasn't Hillary had like a very competent, skilled team. Like, I don't think they felt like they needed to lean us in the same way. And and they probably didn't. So in the sense that, yes, they probably got more help because they needed more help. Yes. But in a nefarious, like, you know, Mark was like doing things for them kind of way. That wasn't really how it played out. This is another example. When we would launch a tool or a product, it's hard sometimes to guess all the ways people are going to use it. And a lot of times there's joy in that because people are going to come up with creative ways to do things that you hadn't thought of. And then other times people use it in ways and you're like, Ooh, that is not what we had in mind. When we launched live streaming, you know, the team was like, this is great. If you're not at the birthday party, now you can be at the birthday party because we can live stream the party. Um, And I think, you know, they gamed out some things like people committing suicide and doing some worst case scenario planning. But we had stuff going on on there that like was shocking. And also I'm, I'm almost glad we couldn't anticipate because it was so dark that it was like, who, you know, we had a, we had a woman who, you know, was sexually assaulted, like in a, a, a terrible way, you know, we had shootings, we had other things and it was like, oh, this is not how do we enforce on this stuff? What's the right way to deal with it? You know, and our teams would move quickly to, you know, really try to mitigate that stuff and keep it off the platform and also deter people from using it in that way. Um, and then other times, you know, it was used in ways we didn't expect that were bad in the moment, but ultimately good. You know, we've we've had a number of police shootings that have, you know, shown up on Facebook, Philando Castile being the big one that really, you know, people think of and was horrific and terrible. And, you know, I remember the night it happened, we were small enough then that, you know, I was part of the team kind of discussing what the right approach was. And again, I wasn't there. We have people who actually manage content policy. It was more just so we could provide a lens on, you know, what policymakers are going to be asking and what we need to be accountable for in the moment. Um, Horrific situation, but also critical because, I think that's the kind of thing that unless you can see it with your own eyes, it's hard to believe the tools made that possible. So, you know, Trump, I think, is a different example of that, where somebody's taken these tools and started to use them in ways we just didn't really anticipate and really struggled with how to manage because he was pushing limits that we hadn't seen other elected officials push and didn't seem to have any guardrails on what he was willing to try. And so, you know, that was difficult. I don't think it's disputed now that Facebook and some other platforms like YouTube through the algorithms became places that amplified misinformation and information that was emotional, angry, um, led people down paths that radicalized them, that people who were trying to radicalize use those strategically use those aspects of the plot of Facebook and other platforms to do that. Was there, did there come a point of in time internally where anybody in your group was trying to get change and it was turned down from above? 
what kind of policy around this became tested internally? I mean, perpetual. I, you know, I, I, again, I think it looks to people outside like we only are debating these things when there's like a really glaring bad example, but that's not true. Um, there's smaller examples that pop up all the time that are kind of constantly having, a, you know, having the company. I keep saying us. I've, I've been out for about four weeks and it's still hard to shed the identity. But it's only four weeks, Crystal? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I left. I left. Oh, I guess it's been almost six now. But after seven and a half years, I guess it, it takes a while to, to let go of that part of your identity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is kind of constant, you know, reevaluation of are the policies that we have working to make sure this, you know, platform is a place people want to spend time and that people are having, you know, a good experience. And also, are we treating the content fairly? I, I think there's also a lot more discussion of trade-offs than people realize. Like, it's not just one person going, well, I want to help so-and-so. And so this is how we're going to do this. It's, okay, if we make this decision, how does this apply if other people do it? And um, are we overstepping? Like, if we remove something, are we going too far? Do people want us in the role of hiding things because we've decided they shouldn't be on the internet, you know, or they shouldn't be on the platform. Again, it's hard to explain the scale of the, the platform until you're kind of inside. But even like the political content, political content is such a tiny part of what gets posted on Facebook on a daily basis. Like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's happening that's not that, but everybody hones in on that piece of it. Um, and... I, there, there was constant deliberation on policy and, you know, how how to deal with some of these problems. So after the 2016 election, you know, the leadership team at Facebook and everybody really were doing deep thinking about, you know, what was causing the type of discourse we saw on the platform. There was, regardless of Trump, even bef- like regardless of the outcome, the, the discourse around the election was really fraught and angry. And, you know, it, it seemed at the time, like people were reacting to like the news and, uh, you know, that the the news itself was sort of fomenting all of this anger. And so it was like, how do we get people talking to each other again, and having like engagement with the people they care about, which was why the platform was started in the first place. So we pivoted to focusing on what we called meaningful social interactions. So that meant basically the feed would get um, shifted a bit. And instead of seeing quite so much from pages in your feed, you'd see more from friends and from groups that you followed. The idea being you're going to be seeing more about like, you know, we bought a new house or, you know, my kid won a soccer game or our group is meeting to play checkers next week in the park than you would, you know, about like Trump and Hillary fighting about something. And again, I don't know how much we took into account, one, the anger that was still there and how it was going to play out, particularly once Trump was in office and continuing to, he needed that, right? That's currency for him. The thing that mystified me is We've seen this behavior before, you know, when Obama was running, it was all through email where he was Muslim and, you know, they were making up stories about him 
And, you know, you'd get those from like your crazy uncle. And I think unintentionally by trying to move people back to talking to their actual connections, it almost reinforced some of the bad stuff that their actual connections were saying to them because you're going to believe something even more if it comes from somebody you know. And I don't think this was malicious on Facebook's part. I do think like there was a real intention to get people back to being connected to the people and things they care about. But again, slow to respond to what the people you care about are actually talking about in the moment and what that looks like. There's been endless hand-wringing over what to do about misinformation. And a lot of the people that traffic in it the most or have the biggest followings are very careful about how they say it so that, you know, it's either an opinion or it's just really hard to nail down what counts and what doesn't. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of eye rolling when people listen to this because to them, it's really obvious. But there are probably really obvious examples, but there's a lot of them that are a lot more gray area. And this also gets to one of the strange dichotomies about how Facebook is viewed publicly, which is people love to excoriate Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, they call him stupid. They call him evil. Every nasty thing you can say about him At the same time, they want him deciding what's okay and what's not to be on the platform. And if he's got all these terrible traits that they claim, I don't know that he should be the police officer for this stuff. I've never gotten a sense that he's really comfortable with that, which is why I think he leans into this freedom of expression argument. Um, On a personal level, I think the company's leaned into that too much. Like We have a real responsibility to recognize when freedom of expression starts to turn into harm. You know, again, that's an argument that is constantly going on internally and trying to find that line so that we're not squelching people's ability to have conversations about tough subjects without actually inspiring more anger and more trouble. And again, they clearly haven't found the right balance yet. But I, I, I will say there's a sincere effort to, to try to, to make that work. It sounds so self-serving, but it's really hard to get this right. You went on to different roles, head of global civic partnerships and and then to be a lobbyist for Facebook. (laughs) Tell (laughs) tell me about those changes for you. Um, So after the 2016 election, I wanted to do more global work with the company. I thought it was an opportunity. One, I worked on a ton of elections, different capacities over the years and had done, you know, a couple of Facebook at that point and wanted to also figure out ways that we could be working with outside organizations more to do better. Um, That was one of the things when we were doing our soul search post 2016 was we really need to be talking to more people who understand the dynamics in these different countries and what this stuff looks like to help us inform how we're doing this work. And so the work we came up with for me was working with these organizations and really getting embedded with them. So you know, the tools we were offering for elections would make sense. Understanding, this is to me really critical, the dynamics of the elections and like the language people are using and understanding threats before they turn into huge problems. It's a difficult thing to do only because, you know, elections and people are so dynamic. Um, The example I point to all the time is Pepe the Frog. You know, Pepe started as an innocent cartoon character became a symbol that white supremacists used as shorthand in American social media. But then, you know, sometime later during the Hong Kong protests, teenagers there who were freedom fighters started using Pepe, not knowing its history elsewhere as a symbol of their fight. And on Facebook, 
we labeled Pepe as like a symbol of hate. That's not how he was being used in Hong Kong. So, you know, had to adjust the rules to accommodate that, make sure the people who are reviewing that content understood to look at the context so we weren't removing stuff incorrectly. The stuff is a moving target and understanding those dynamics. So working with these groups, I mean, that's, you know, one tiny example, but given the geographic differences, the language differences, and just the cultural differences in a lot of these countries, having folks who really could explain to us what was going on was critical. Um, And I'm really proud of the work we did. And also here in the States, just worked with a bunch of civic organizations to better understand how, you know, our platform could be a force for good in elections for everyone in a nonpartisan way. I am proud to say I, I brought National Voter Registration Data Facebook and we, you know, started way too small for me at the beginning. But, you know, by the 2020 election, basically every department in the company was doing something in support of National Voter Registration Day and was really leaning it into how can they help with people participating in the election as much as they can. So, you know, we we did a lot of great work around the civic partnerships. And I, I do think it really helped improve our elections work at Facebook. So, you know, I have a lot of pride in that. And then we had some different kind of organizational changes within the company. And I, I'd always been worked closely with our lobbying team, but hadn't been on it. Uh, the guy who runs the lobbying team is probably, he's one of my favorite people in the company. He's a really great manager. He's a really great person and smart. And um, I had been trying to figure out how I could be helpful once Biden won and Democrats, you know, were, you know, the majority in the House and the Senate it felt like a good time to try to be helpful with my relationships and experience from before. And so I, you know, I talked to the manager of the Hill team and a couple of the Dem lobbyists and said, why don't I split some time with you guys to start to figure out how we can try to rebuild some of these relationships with Democrats because between Trump and a series of other things over the last few years, the hostility from Democrats was just off the charts and it was just a really difficult environment. And I thought this was a nice way for me to switch things up. I'd been doing the civic partnerships for like three and a half years and had hired a couple people. I had some help and could split my time a little bit. Um, And then January 6th happened. And our lead for the House Dem team left about a week later. She'd had, she's very well respected for good reason. Who's that? Catlin O'Neill. She worked for Nancy Pelosi for a long time, was a chief of staff for her. She's actually one of the people that, you know, was like, you should come over to Facebook with me. And and in full disclosure, she's, a, you know, a close personal friend of mine, but professionally is one of the most well-liked and well-respected people on the Hill, I think, on both sides of the aisle. Just an amazing professional and great person and had really had a tough time with the hostility from the Democrats and, you know, from Speaker Pelosi in particular, her office was really angry with Facebook and how we'd handled a number of things, including a video that had been manipulated to make her look bad. But that one was more complicated than it looked to. Catelyn, you know, worked on the Hill for a long time, I think has a lot of pride in the work that happens there, has a lot of personal integrity um, and had, had had, you know, really spent years inside of Facebook trying to you know, advocate for her stakeholders and January 6th happened. And I think she just was sort of like, okay, you know, we've, we've now hit on something that is a bridge too far for me watching people destroy this institution that 
you know, I really care about and I'm devoted to even slightly feeling like, you know, we, we were part of it in any way. I just, I just can't. Um, so, and I'm putting words in her mouth a little bit. She, that's not a quote, but that was the sense I got from her. So anyway, she decided to leave fairly suddenly. And I reached out to the guy who runs the Hill team and said, if you need help, you know, with that Catlin gone, she was, a, it was a huge gap having her leave with her relationships. And I certainly didn't fill that gap, but I thought I could help. And he said, that'd be great. And then we decided to make it permanent a few weeks later. And, you know, I was thrilled to be on that team. They're really smart, again, to my point about learning from people and, you know, being around awesome folks to just be a sponge. It was great for me. And, um, and also frustrating, you know, I was tasked with coming up with like more like medium and long-term projects to help rebuild our reputation. And, the hits just kind of kept coming. You know, we, we, President Biden made that comment about Facebook is killing people. Facebook responded, I thought, well, at first by pointing out all the, you know, good work they did on COVID. And then at the last minute on a Friday night, stuck in a, a little poke at the Biden administration for not meeting their vaccination goals, which was like an unnecessary jab, no pun intended, but also like, kind of going after somebody who'd been a good partner for us. And like, this was like a really nice thing we could point to that we'd worked on with the White House. And now, you know, it had sort of been, you know. Sullied. Sullied is a nice way to put it um, with one little statement. And th- th- the part that really concerned me was that, you know, when President Biden said Facebook is killing people, you know, he was doing his usual kind of off the cuff, real talk. And I, I told a colleague, I said, you know, the, the bigger problem we have is that that's how he really feels. That wasn't like a talking point somebody handed him. That was just when you say Facebook, that's what comes to mind for him. That's what they say when we're not around. And he's not the only one that feels that way. And I was like, and our challenge is getting them to move away from feeling that way. And I don't know how we do that. I will say on a personal level, the company's gotten a lot bigger. You know, I had some challenges with trying to move up and you know, negotiating the internal politics of that place. I was not well suited for it all the time. I don't think there's, there's a way you can operate in there that helps you advance. And I just didn't really do that. And so, you know, I, between the lack of growth opportunities and also just the general frustration of not really feeling like we had the right tools in the toolbox to move the needle, I had another opportunity came up and I'm really excited about it. And it's nice to be out. I'm grateful for all the time I had a Facebook, even the tough ones, but also felt like I left at the right time. It's in the news a lot lately. This business with the Facebook papers leaked by Francis, is it Hagen? Um, Hagen, yeah. How do you view that? That, uh, like, you, I assume you knew her? Um, I, you know, I did not, actually. Oh. Um, which is interesting. But I mean, I think this goes to part of why I have very mixed emotions about the documents and all of this. I understand why she did it. There are a lot of people, I think, internally, as we've seen from a lot of the reporting who have concerns and and aren't necessarily of the same mind that I was, which was that the most effective way to kind of affect change was to do it from within. But I didn't know her. And part of why that is, is because there are so many people working on elections at Facebook. I know that any project I was touching I had the folks that I would meet with and talk to, but also there were probably many other people, many other teams that were paying attention to it or involved in some way that didn't directly affect me. 
And that's true of almost everything at the company. These work streams are complicated. I worked on elections the entire time I was there. You could take documents I had and you'd only get a small piece of what the full picture was. It's been jarring to read some of the things that have come out just because I don't know that they jive necessarily with the message we were carrying publicly, which I think has also become clear. We would give reassurances about things. And I think internally, it wasn't as clear cut as, you know, we made it sound. I didn't know that. It, it seems naive to people, but, you know, I've trusted that they were giving us legitimate information. I still mostly feel that way. I don't think anybody was malicious here. Francis, it's hard to say this without sounding dismissive. She was there for about two years. Whenever somebody new starts there, I tell them it's going to take probably at least nine months before you start to feel like you know what's going on. I feel like it's longer with COVID because you just aren't in the office with people and able to talk to them and also understand all the moving parts. And I think it's hard for any one person to define what's going on with any project or decision making. And that's including leadership. I mean, there's just the companies big. It's hard to have your arms around all of it. Um, I actually think Jeff Horowitz at the Wall Street Journal probably has the best perspective at this point because he's had all these documents and the best visibility across things compared to anybody else that is alive right now. But, you know, Francis was very, very, very good as a witness. She's credible. I wouldn't have done what she did. I mean, some of it's just a function of time. Like I was busy doing my job and wouldn't have had time to go and find all that stuff. That also is not how I would have chosen to address it. But I respect her choice. I also would just caution everybody that there isn't anything at Facebook that isn't more complicated than it first appears. And, and I'm not even saying that as an apologist. If you read the Wall Street Journal article, I think it's pretty clear. I certainly um, don't mince words about some of the challenges we had working with Democrats. But there's no clear villains here. And there's no clear right answers on a lot of the things that people think are obvious. So... I wish her luck. I, I'm glad we're all having this conversation. I think the company needs to adjust how it communicates with people and what it shares. And so I think in that regard, it's a good thing. And you got, I don't know, 50 news organizations working over all of these <laughs> things and coming up with inflammatory articles about it, some fairly Ironically, and some unfairly. Ironically, that's what sells. I mean, the yeah. thing that they're you know taking Facebook to task for is also, you know, part of their business model. And that's not indicting the reporters, but, you know, the media environment's tough right now. And, you know, it, it catching eyeballs matters. So I, I, there was a summary sort of sentence on Political Wire. I don't know if you read that, but commonly read uh, political breaking news blog in, in D.C. Um, it says it's just indisputable that Facebook has caused considerable harm to our society. When you read something like that, or hear it, do you feel like that is a fair or unfair indictment of a company that you worked with for so long? I, I understand that sentiment. Um, I will say to you what I said. I've, I've actually said this on a couple of panels I've been on. I'm sure, well, I'm sure Facebook comms is cringing at me generally anyway, but would cringe that I said this. But one of my concerns with the focus on Facebook is one, Facebook's one platform. This isn't a Facebook issue to me. It's a tech and internet issue. If this wasn't happening on Facebook, it'd be happening somewhere else. And we need to wrap our arms around 
you know, how people are communicating online just generally. I also worry that the focus on Facebook pulls from the underlying societal issues that are driving people to communicate with this, each other like this on the platforms in the first place. Yes, there needs to be, you know, something done about social media. I, I, to Facebook's credit, they've been saying that for years, like they shouldn't be the ones making these decisions. And I, I think we need to <laughs> pay attention to that more. But something's really wrong with the direction we've gone in, in terms of how people treat each other, talk to each other, um, whatever. And you could, you could take Facebook away today and that would still be an issue. Does Facebook, you know, exacerbate it? There's probably a good case for that. You know, I, I, I'm always hesitant though to rest too much on the platforms themselves and absolve the people who are choosing to do these things of owning some of it. So I don't know. I, I understand the sentiment. I think it's more complicated than that. When I talked recently to Katie Harbath, who you worked with yeah. there, and and we had a, a very similar back and forth, I think, about, she said, you know, it's actually incredibly difficult to make a lot of these calls and things are more complicated. And I, I, have, a, I have a fair amount of sympathy for the reality of that. But I also understand that sometimes the complication of dealing with something could be an excuse to not take it on frontally. And I just wondered if with all that experience you've had inside looking at, at it and, and all that knowledge, do you think there is a set of reforms that could be applied to Facebook and to other platforms that might substantially help? Yeah. So I, I actually think you're pushback on that is fair. I do think there are times when, you know, we've kind of thrown our hands up as opposed to making a tough decision. So when I say these are all complicated, they aren't all. Like there are some things where I think we probably could have been more clear about drawing a line. I think, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts is a good example. Like to me, that was a pretty clear cut case of something that was dangerous and that was in violation of our, our rules. I mean, that, that I think that's where I struggle is like, we will make exceptions to our rules at times when it's, you know, it's hard to, to understand. Um, but on the flip side of that, to the difficulty, when we would make decisions about something, it was, the goal was to have it rooted in a policy. And actually, I'd like to go back to the Pelosi video for one second. You know, we had this manipulated video of Nancy Pelosi. And at that point, Deep fakes were being talked about, but I don't think we'd really seen an example like that yet on the platform. And, you know, we immediately had understandable, like angry blowback. Why would you leave this up? What are you doing? Da, 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 da. But we needed a policy enforcement reason why it would not be allowed because there's satire all the time. We have, you know, clips even just from like Saturday Night Live where they're making fun of elected officials. Like, are those not okay? And, you know, I, Right before the Pelosi video went up, Donald Trump, you know, is in England. I think he was meeting with the Queen. And all over social media, people were putting like Burger King crowns on him. They were putting shopping bags in his hand. You know, they were photoshopping photos to make him look ridiculous. What is the policy you write that makes the Pelosi video not okay to keep up, but the Trump stuff fine? Because that also is 
you know, kind of undermining his role as the president. It's implying he wasn't doing his job and he was off shopping. I mean, it's not the same as the drunk video, but policy-wise, we need to make a distinction between those two things and explain why one's acceptable and one's not. There is a case to be made there, but it's harder than you think. And so, yes, there are some things where I, I think, to your point, that the, the difficulty becomes an excuse. And then in other times, I do think there's there's a real effort to maintain integrity in the process. And sometimes that means we don't have a policy that actually applies correctly. And, and they've since come up with a deep fake policy. I mean, it wasn't in the moment like everybody wanted. But, you know, they've, they've again, to my point earlier, there's just kind of constant rumination over what needs to happen. Um, in terms of what the right regulatory solutions are, it's actually, I think it's really hard to distill into a couple of, you know, points. This touches on so many things. There's commerce, people run small businesses on there. There's weird advertisements, people find housing, people exchange information about, we have groups with like people with rare medical conditions who talk to each other. Like there's all kinds of stuff on there that, you know, most people probably don't even think about. So I think it's hard to distill it too much. I do think for me, I, I really do think there probably needs to be like a separate agency that just works on internet and tech because the issues are changing constantly and the breadth and depth of them. It's not something Congress can do and do all the rest of their work. It just changes too quickly. And I, I just think it's too hard. Um, but a couple of things are just more transparency. You know, Facebook's been pointing at this transparency center they launched earlier this year, which is a good step. But they've set the terms for what counts as transparency, like working with some outside folks to, you know, to come up with some benchmarks for what information they could share that would be helpful would be great. Some of these things are just, I really am confused by because, you know, they've given researchers access to some information, whether it's in the ads library or through CrowdTangle. And then when the researchers started coming up with things that they didn't like or that didn't fit their narrative, the reaction was to pull their access. Facebook may likely say that's not how it went, but that's how it looked to people. I think having more transparency about that kind of information would help a lot too. And, and also just getting input from a lot of these outside folks. We have a number of experts who've worked with the company and who've proffered suggestions. Like they should be hugging those people and saying, okay, help us get to a place. We can't do this tomorrow. But, you know, how in the next couple of years can we get to a place where people feel comfortable about what we're doing? You know, what numbers can we share that will provide enough context so people understand? And some of this would work to their advantage. Like, I think if people understood how little political content makes up the scope of what's on Facebook, that would also help make it clear why some of these things that seem like everybody's just seeing the same bad post isn't actually the case. And, you know, it would just help people understand it better. So I, I, I'm in favor of a separate kind of enforcement agency um, and something that recognizes that, you know, coming up with like a list of four or five things isn't really the answer. And also just more openness about, you know, what they're seeing, what counts as hate speech, you know, what are they counting as incitements to violence? What do those numbers actually look like? What are they doing to counter it, all that kind of stuff. One piece of data that came out was that it seemed like Facebook was making exceptions for politicians on the right that it wasn't making for politicians on the left. I'm sure you're aware of that. How do you read that uh, particular? 
I can only speak to what I saw. And over different times, I saw a fair amount of stuff. Like early on, I saw more escalations, as we called them. Later on, I saw a lot less of them, um, just by virtue of my job changing. What I noticed, and again, this is anecdotal to me, (laughs) the folks on the right are more proactive about reaching out when they feel like something has been done to them on the platform. We definitely had some folks on the left, but I, I also think by virtue of the messaging and the issues that the conservatives are working on, they're just more likely to run afoul of the community standards. You can take that however you will, but I, I think their their language, their approach right now is much more likely to bump up against problems. They're also just a lot more likely to, to come yelling when they feel like they've been mistreated. I don't have like a list to go through and say what was, you know, what the numbers were. But I would say that we definitely heard from them more about, you know, kind of the injustice of the way they're being treated on the platform. And I will say for either side, there was a sincere effort anytime there was a complaint made to make sure we had enforced any policy correctly if we'd made a mistake to fix it. And that it wasn't just, oh, that person is conservative. We're going to let this fly. That's not how it worked. I think they were much stronger advocates for (laughs) themselves on that front. But I also think they needed to be because they had a lot more violations. Sounds like you learned a lot in seven years. Yeah. My running joke is that it's like the best and worst business school you could ever attend. Like, you know, amazingly successful company, really well run, employees were treated well. Everything you want in your company to provide in terms of making your work life easier, you know, making you feel supported outside of work, they did. But then also, you know, because they're human beings, you know, decisions would get made and it's like, whoa, why did we do that? Or how do we come to this conclusion? And the answer is like, at the end of the day, it's still people. They're, you know, I think trying their best to come up with good solutions, but they're not going to get it right all the time. I think it's easy to be harsh about it when you take the people out of it. Um, and when you're outside the company, you just look at it, this giant machine. Or you just look at the consequences without the explanation for the why. Yes. Or or you look at it, and, you know, I think like Mark and Cheryl have almost become like comic book figures as opposed to humans. Like, you know, they've they had this myth making at the beginning because they built this incredible company and, you know, they've done all these great things. And then once there were some cracks in kind of how it all worked, it was easy to kind of demonize them because they'd been so successful. It was like, oh, well, you know, maybe they're not so smart after all. And, you know, it just becomes about these like perceptions of who they are as opposed to what's really going on. And that isn't to discount people's complaints about the company, but a lot of the legitimate stuff gets wrapped up in these narratives about these two people that have been, you know, made larger than life when really they are trying to run a big company and make the best decisions for the company. There are plenty of times when I disagreed with those decisions, but they're not comic book characters either. (laughs) Well, I, I really appreciate your generosity in talking for so long about it. I know it's charged when you've been in the middle of it and, and you, you know, something that you're a part of is the brunt of so much criticism it's, yeah. it it's also be, hard. It, yeah, it, it's, it's got to be a lot of mixed feelings. It's definitely a lot of mixed feelings. I, I feel a lot of gratitude for having been there. I worked with awesome people. It's also hard for me because there's a lot of people outside the company who for a long time have really not understood why I stayed or 
you know, just had real differences with how the company makes decisions, which I also respect. And reconciling those two, you know, has been tough. But I, I mean, on balance, I'm really glad I worked there. I feel like, you know, I was able to do a lot of good work there and worked with a lot of awesome people. I, I hope that's one thing people take from these articles they're reading that this all exists because there are a lot of good people trying to understand the effects of the platform, trying to find solutions to make it better and really passionate about, you know, making the internet and tech something that works for people as opposed to something that is harmful to society. So, you know, I hope that doesn't get lost in the excitement of getting all this inside information. Do you think they would benefit from a new leader? I think uh, my, again, from the very cheap seats, I, I didn't spend very much time at all interacting with Mark and Cheryl. You know, if you look at my resume, I'm, I was not particularly senior in the company. But from where I sit, he is still really excited about coming up with ideas and being involved in like figuring out how to build the coolest tools and, you know, continue the legacy that I think he felt like he's built with the company. I could see him in a like strategic role and move out of some of these management decisions. I think he'd be probably happier for it. Again, I don't know him. He and the company, it's it's hard to separate them, but I'm actually surprised at how little has changed in terms of the leadership of the company, despite all of these challenges they've had. PR 101 says something's got to give, somebody's got to go. I even think they would just benefit from widening the circle a little bit. So many of these problems are because it's a fairly small group. There's a reason why they all work together. They like each other. They like the way the others think. If they had more voices of dissent, I think pushing back as deliberations were being made, it would probably help them. And diversity means, you know, more women, more representation from around the world to represent some of these viewpoints that, you know, aren't just American. Like there's lots of ways they could diversify the leadership team that I think would strengthen them. I am hesitant to go with off with their heads because I think that's too simplistic an answer. But I do think they need to, you know, shift how they're making decisions and thinking about these challenges. So how does it feel now to be out and what are you doing? I work at a public affairs consulting firm. It's called FSB Public Affairs. They started in California and have been successful there. And uh, Jeff Flint, who started the company, really loves the work and wanted to go bigger. And so, you know, started expanding and I'm, you know, tasked with starting and building out our DC office, which I'm very excited about. I did love the work at Facebook, you know, where we're solving policy and communications challenges for a big company. And now I just get to do that for different clients, which is fun. I'm working on different issues and, you know, just stretching some muscles I haven't gotten to use in a while, which is exciting. And also, you know, we're, we're kind of in startup mode. It's an established company with, you know, a good reputation in California. And it's fun to kind of start from the ground up here in DC and and build up. And it reminds me a little bit of early days of Facebook. You know, when I started there, we had 35 people in the DC office. And when I left, we had over a thousand. So, you know, I think I really enjoy that process of growth. And we've got a great team. They've been wonderful. I'm really excited to, to see what we can do there. So that part is exhilarating. Um, it was it was mixed leaving Facebook. I was sad to leave so many awesome people. I wish there'd been more growth opportunities there. I, you know, when I was in, I was really in and, you know, devoted to the company. And 
I, I think by the end, I don't necessarily felt like that was reciprocated all the time. Um, not in a malicious way, but you know, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle at a company that size. And still a lot of deep thinking about what we did while I was there and what it means. I think a lot of the questions you've been asking, you know, I kind of toss around in my mind from time to time and, you know, think about like, what impact did all of this have? You know, are these people that are angry, are they 100% right? Are they 70% right? Are they 50% right? I can't do it too much because it, it sort of becomes overwhelming. Um, and so as you probably noticed, I really try to focus on the stuff that was good. But, you know, it's, I, I think it's going to be a long time before I have a clear answer on, you know, how I feel about my time there. And frankly, time will tell what the ultimate story of the company is. So I, I, I guess that makes sense. I, yeah, it's, it sounds like a pretty wise outlook on it and, and probably necessary as it evolves in public perception and your own. Um, is there a question about your career or Facebook that I didn't ask that I should have? I would say the one thing that I didn't anticipate that was different at Facebook than anywhere else I worked was, you know, I worked in democratic politics. I certainly had guys who, you know, were mansplainers. There were dynamics about, you know, gender dynamics and racial dynamics that were, I think, lighter there. But at Facebook, it's really weird. I was more aware of my like identity as a person there than I ever was. And some of that when I started was because we had hardly any black employees in the DC office. A lot of times I was sort of advocating for groups who weren't in the room. I, I don't know. Like I just was very aware of my identity in a way that I wasn't elsewhere. And and I the problem is once you notice that, it's hard not to see it in everything. Like you can't tell sometimes if you know, you, you got treated a certain way or something happened or didn't happen because of, you know, a bias people have or if it's because of something else that's innocent. And, you know, that's like a little bit of a virus, you know, for someone mentally. It just surprised me because I think of politics as like, you know, it's pretty tough. I adapted to it quickly. I think, I, you know, I've got like an inner mercenary that was very comfortable with it. But that's why the change of Facebook really surprised me because I am not particularly sensitive um, but also that didn't happen on campaigns. You know, if you showed you could do the work and, you know, did the work, you could move up, people would hand you responsibilities and people didn't have time to get caught up in like identity politics because we were trying to win, you know, whether it's passing a bill or winning a campaign and at a business that's different. There's probably not enough conversation about that. I know we talk about diversity and tech and all that stuff, but like, bringing it down to a human level and talking about that change is something that should get more attention. I would liken it actually to me leaving my small town and going to Chicago. It was uncomfortable and a strange sensation and something I had to adjust to. Well, Crystal, I'm really honored to have had the chance to talk to you again for so long. And, and it's good to have kind of followed your career for for a bunch of years, and I look forward to following it for a bunch more. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. That was Crystal Patterson. Crystal is at fsbpublicaffairs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.